If you think of this idea of peace, right, it can seem very illusionary. Like, it's an illusion. When is peace going to happen? And uh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe some of you guys are into superhero movies, right? And we have, I can't go through all the superheroes, but you have what, Superman, you have Batman, you have Iron Man, you have Flash, man. I'm staying with the man. Uh, you even have Ant-Man, you know? I didn't know that existed until I saw it was a movie, which I watched. But it was on the plane, okay? It was on the plane. Um, but I say that we need the peace man. And like I said in my class, you got to show me the peace sign. And they don't get my humor at all. So uh, it's too dry. They're too young. Uh, but the title of my lesson says simply the peace man, okay? And you can go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. And uh, like I said, you'll be going through the book of Ephesians as a church. And in chapter 1, you know, Paul is basically just celebrating all the spiritual blessings time in Christ. How amazing it is to be in Christ. And because of that amazement, Paul is praying for the recipients of the letter, the Christians, to understand how amazing it is to be in Christ. He's praying that they should pray to understand how amazing it is to be in Christ. And I want to have that heart too. Then he goes in chapter 2 and reminds them on an individual basis that it's amazing, but remember... Where you were, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You were under God's wrath. That's why also it's so amazing, because now you're not under God's wrath. And we're going to pick it up in verse 11, where Paul kind of continues with this topic as he talks to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In verse 11, it says, Therefore, and Paul is referring to the previous passage we talked about, they were saved by grace. Remember, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So here Paul is telling them to remember. Twice he says it. That formerly you are Gentiles by birth. And then in verse 12, we can remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And he goes on to say that you're separate from Christ. You're excluded from citizenship in Israel. You're foreigners to the covenants without hope and without God in the world. And uh, one commentary said that, you know, obviously Paul is, Paul is making an argument. And he said, you know, the privileges that we enjoy... In Christ, we much more appreciate if you remember the state of life that you've been delivered from. Yeah. And that's the argument that Paul is building. He wants you to really appreciate what you have, but if you understand where you came from, kind of like the simple woman in Luke 7, you really, really appreciate it so much more. Yeah. And uh, the Message Bible, for those of you who you know, read that from time to time, this is how he, how he writes it. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea who Christ was. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue 
of what God was doing in the world at large. And Paul sums it up in verse 3. It's not a happy, clappy truth, but it still is the truth. He says, uh, sorry, not verse 3, verse 13, verse 12, end of verse 12. You were without hope and without God in the world. You know, this really is a sobering truth. And you probably experienced this, whether when you were confronted with that, or maybe you confronted some other, someone else with that, that people do not like to hear. That regardless of where you are in life, because of your relationship or non-relationship with Jesus Christ, you are without hope and without God in this world. And I remember, especially when we were over in Scandinavia, people that have an atheist background do not like to hear absolute statements like that. That is not progressive, and that is not liberal, and that is very, very traditional and old-fashioned, and that is very judgmental. People react and do not like to hear this truth. Regardless, it is the truth. My first point, the guys have two points. Remember that you call from a place of no hope. And the the word that is translated without God here is the word atheos, which we get the word atheist from. And it's the only time that is used in the New Testament. Okay, and it can also be used in the biblical usage uh, to mean without God, not knowing, worshiping no God, denying the gods, especially the recognized gods of the era, or being ungodless, or be, excuse me, being ungodly or godless. And uh, you know, back when this was written, the Christians were actually called the atheists because they didn't recognize the established gods of the day. Then later they were not the atheists and the other people became the atheists. But the Jews, like it says here, they were the circumcised group. And they took deep pride in being the circumcised group. They were descendants of Abraham, you know, people of the covenant, of the promise. All these things that the prophets spoke about so many times were for the Jews. And the great, great, great pride in that. Maybe like some Cowboys fans out here. I just saw a person with a Cowboy, you know. Um, you take great pride in the Cowboys, you know, uh, or something like that, whether, whatever sport it is, sports. You know, and the Gentiles were referred to the uncircumcised. They were outside the covenant. They did not have any hope or peace with God. However, in the new covenant, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It is by faith that you are saved. And Paul has elaborated on this in the previous passage. In Galatians 5, Paul says it almost even stronger. Galatians 5, verse 2, talking to a congregation, I was kind of reverting back to the Old Covenant, how they were saved by the law, and Paul said, no, 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 no. You're saved by faith. That is his main point. And this is what Paul says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Thank you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. We're saved by faith. Through Jesus Christ. And also in Romans, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans, obviously Paul builds an argument about the Jews uh, that they were indeed the people of the promise, uh, but them are, that they are the same place as the Gentiles. And in Romans 2, verse 21 to 23, Paul gives arguments that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. 
There's no difference for the Jew or the Gentile because we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. So Paul is saying that, yes, the Gentiles were without God, but also that circumcision was done in the body. It is not something that is, doing, is done to the heart. It is done in the body. So even though this, the gender Jews are saying, that, yeah, we are the circumcision, but Paul says it is done in the body. You are in the same place, even though he's talking to the Gentiles in this particular passage. So Paul is obviously telling them, you know, remember where you came from. You were the people without the promise. And for a lot of us, you probably remember where you came from. And I'm sure for most of us, you know, probably you, you, know, you look at your the place with pride, right? You know, I'm from Alabama, or I don't know, from New York, or, you know, Canada. Yeah, some Canadians here, right? Uh, Norway, you know, some of us from Norway, and, you know, uh, I, I think of that with pride. You know, like, I'm from Norway, I, you know, it's not something I look down. I'm like, yeah, that's my, you know, I was born there, and I have great memories, and uh, obviously Norway's up by Santa Claus, for those who maybe hasn't, you know, in high school yet. Uh, but, you know, way up north, and... Um, I'm from the east side of town. I remember when I, when, we, when I grew up, the east side of town of Oslo is where all the minorities usually, the minority families, immigrants. And we thought, man, this is the place to be. Because on the west side, uh-uh, that's just, you know, preppy boys. And this is before I was a Christian, of course. Uh, they live over there, right? My wife has been there. And the subway line that goes to where I live is the, the, the number five, okay? Vestli. I don't know if you heard of that. Have you guys heard of that? Vestli? No, no? Okay. Anyways, that's the name of it, okay? And, uh, you know, there was all this graffiti, and there was, like, a hip-hop culture along that line, and I think thought, I was like, this is so cool. You know, like, we take great pride in this. And when I go back now, I look at this, man, this is, like, it's, it's ugly, you know? It's like, man, this is, like, scramble on the wall. I mean, I like, you know, art, you know, like, graffiti. That's nice, but just, like, this nasty, random words. I mean, what is this? And... When I think, look back, I mean, I see it wasn't all that great. I mean, there was like all kinds of societal issues, and integration was a huge problem. It still is a huge problem in the area. I think likewise, and sometimes like spiritually, the spiritual connection is the same. When we grew up, we're not disciples, not Christians. We thought, man, this is the life. I can do whatever I want to do. I can pursue whatever I want to pursue. And I have absolute freedom to do whatever I want to do. Not. Okay, you don't have absolute freedom. You live in the society. There's laws, there's rules, right? If you do certain things, there's consequences. Okay? And that's why people tend to, tend to think to believe that if, you, if you're not a Christian, you have this absolute freedom, which is not true at all. There's freedom in Christ. But that's kind of a little side point there. But now, when we have been, our eyes have been opened, we have been exposed to the gospel, we look back and realize we were blind, we were, you know, we were in a, in a pitiful spiritual state. We were heading toward destruction. And uh, N.T. Wright, you know, who wrote on a commentary on Ephesians as well, he, he said that, you know, people in general, and I agree with this, they don't think that necessarily that much wrong with the human race, and especially not with themselves. Like, we're not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to drive or change lane or use a blinker. You know, Thomas, the sister... Um, <laughs> you know, but that's what usually most people think. That is, it's not themselves, it's everybody else. Okay, and people in general, people in general don't see their need for God's grace. What they, this is what he argues, okay? 
They just need a little bit of spiritual enhancement of ordinary life. Just a little bit of salt, okay? A gentle enrichment. Just like a little bit of Jesus in my life because I'm pretty good. But no, what Paul is saying is that we need a radical rescue. It was disaster coming our way. Like when you're facing God and if you're not right with God, it's disaster. It's not just assault. I mean, you need a transformation. And that's what he's arguing as well. So, if you, as you know, we're all disciples. And if you, I've been there, you know, if you look back sometimes in Paul, like, man, I became a Christian. I became a Christian at Old Dominion University in 2002. And I thought, when I become a Christian, I'm going to become a soccer star. Because guess what? God is going to be on my side. Okay, I played for Old Dominion, the soccer team. And guess what happened? The exact opposite. I was, you know, banging my head in as well. What in the world is this? I was so frustrated for two years. Because I was still fighting God of being surrendered. To not idolizing soccer anymore. So I've been there when I look, you know, look back, like, man, I wonder. I would have so much more time to juggle that ball. You know, if it had midweek every Tuesday or something like that. But maybe for you, it's kind of like a joke. There you go, it's very dry, right? Uh, but maybe for you, you could struggle with looking back and thinking, you know, it was pretty nice back then. Okay? And I want to help you and help myself to get perspective. You know, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. It's a short verse, but remember Lot's wife. She looked back. And you think of, you know, what Paul is arguing here. He says, remember, remember what you were in the past. And if you think of our past, right, some of us have a past that maybe in the eyes of the world, your worldly credentials was very high. You were glorious. You were successful. Your people esteemed you, looked up to you. Okay, you had popular when you were in school, maybe you had a lot of friends, you had a good job, you were wealthy. But still, how many had peace? And how many had marriages that were in a place they wanted it to be? You know, amen for Jesus, the gospel exposed us, humbled us, brought us to repentance. Okay, but if you were to rely on your worldly credentials, okay, to, for that to be your hope, because other people put their hope in. If it's not God, then it's something else. That's just the way things work, okay? Maybe it's your sports achievements. Maybe you won a beauty contest when you were five years old. I don't know. <laughs> Academic degrees, the car you drove, your socioeconomic status. Just, if you think, put perspective, okay, how many people, not to put anyone down, but it's just, okay, just trying to reflect, okay? How many in this room look to you and your achievements for hope? Oh, my achievements were hope. Okay? How many Hampton Roads? Like, how many Google your name to look for guidance and wisdom in Hampton Roads? In Virginia, it's about 7, 5, 7.5 million people, some 8 million people. How many call you to ask for your guidance? Like, how do you have such an anchor, like we're saying, right? Hope. What about in the U.S.? People travel from Connecticut to come see you, to sit at your feet, to listen to how you got that hope. People jump on the, you know, jet plane to fly from China to come here to listen to you. I mean, you guys are great, okay? But 
your worldly credentials is not that great. In the long scheme of things, I mean, the things I did, you don't know, you have no clue, because it's not that great. <laughs> I mean, what I did when I was 15 or 16, you know, I think, oh, yeah, that was, that was awesome. You never heard of it. And vice versa, I never heard of what you did, unless I know you. It's forgotten. It's not that great. It is not a real hope. You know, and I do not understand how people, when they take away God, how they find peace in this world. Because life is life. And life can be hard, and life can be challenging. And that's why people do what they do, to get hope. They travel, they buy new stuff, they buy another new thing, and then they buy another new thing. I keep it old stuff, which maybe you can tell, but I don't know. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, they drink, or they, whatever substance abuse, to find peace. And we have that truth. We have that in, right here in the scripture. We have a relationship with God. And, you know, this week kind of had a somewhat <laughs> scary experience. Uh, my father-in-law called me while I was at work, and I missed his call. He usually doesn't call me while I work. You can call me if you're here, Charles. You know, to say hi if you want to. Um, but I started a missed call, and I tried to call him back, and I tried to call Aaron back, can't get a hold of her, and I called, you know, Lisa back, can't get a hold of her. And I'm in the classroom, and the next thing I hear is, like, you know, we have, like, a speaker in our classroom that they can contact the teachers. It's like, Mr. O! That's what they call me at my school. Mr. O! I'm like, yes? Your wife called. She's taking your baby to the ER. I was like, okay, thank you. All the students like, what, what, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I'm just like... I don't know what's wrong. I know my wife is, you know, she's, she's pregnant. She's high risk, but trying to be collected and comfortable. You know, I don't know what's wrong. Uh, you know, I'm going to find out when, when I call her, you know. I kind of get a little nervous. And then, uh, you know, I, I, and then she called me, and then she said, you know, it wasn't her, our baby on the way, but our daughter who had this, you know, she didn't know, she didn't know it then, but we found out she had a seizure. And uh, so I was, I'm leaving work to drive to the ER to meet her, and I'm calling on the way there to the ER, you know, trying to call everyone, and the one I get a hold of is Thomas, and he has no clue, like, what's going on, so he wasn't very helpful. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to stop picking on you, Thomas. <laughs> uh, but I remember praying in the car, and, uh, you know, I'm starting to cry, you know, because I was just thinking about, you know, you Obviously, like, you, you tend to expect the worst, right? When, and, and I can't get a hold of anyone. I'm just, like, crying. And I remember praying that, God, I don't know if I can, how I can deal with it if she, if she were to die. Like, how can I deal with that? I was just, like, because we almost, almost lost it before, and, you know, he's a little emotional. So when I say that, it helps me not to get emotional. There you go, if you want to, you know, a freebie. Uh, but I remember when I prayed that I know that if she were to die, I would still be okay. Like, I would grieve, and it would be, obviously, horrific, but she's not my hope. Like, my daughter is not my hope. God is my hope. If she were my hope, if my wife was my hope, if something happened, I would be devastated. I mean, how would you bounce back from that when your hope is crushed? Not to say to take it lightly, like when things, that, that's a you know, tragic event. But she's not my hope. God is my hope. And the gospel is our hope. And that's so, so amazing that we have the gospel. Like Paul says here in, in Romans fifteen thirteen, it says that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is amazing. And I just realized I, I forgot to ask you a question in the beginning, because I have the answer now, but you, I never gave you the question. So I'm, I'm thinking out loud what I should do, but I'm going to ask the question, Okay. 
you know, I were to ask you, okay, and what makes you not feel at peace? Like, what makes you lose peace? And my answer is, okay, if you put your hope in something else, then your peace goes with that hope, once that hope is crushed. Um, I have another question for you, okay, that I'm going to try and answer. Uh, and that is, what makes you retaliate and not be a peacemaker? So, my second last point, point remember that you're called to peace. In Ephesians, okay, we're going to keep reading here, and Paul says, there's a but, and there's a big but, okay? And it says, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, talking about the Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Amen. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with the commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, the Jews and the Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. Obviously, we know, end of the story, Jesus is the peace man. He's not our man, he's greater than our man, okay? He's not Ant-Man or Flash man, okay? He's the peace man. And he's greater than the Flash man and Ant-Man and Spider-Man, okay? We know that. He came to bring peace. That's what the purpose of Jesus coming, peace between people and peace between people and God, Okay? And Paul says that, you know, through his blood, that there's peace among mankind, basically Jews and Gentiles, okay? And there's also peace between mankind and God, reconciliation. That's what he talks about in this, in this passage. And when you, when you read the Old Testament, or even the whole Bible, you see that it's always been God's desire, God's plan to have peace, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, to bless all nations, and the Jews to be a blessing to other nations, like when you call Abraham in Genesis 12. Okay, and even in John 11, where the Jews are, you know, the, the spiritual gurus are planning to kill someone. I never got that. Like, they're the spiritual leaders, and they're trying to kill people. doesn't really resonate well in my, my log, frame of logic, but anyway. Uh, you know, in Caiaphas, he says, oh, hold it, guys. And he's prophesying, right? And he's saying that Jesus were not only to die for just the Jewish nation, but the scattered children of God to make them one. Okay, that's John 11, 51 through 53. That that's God's plan, that Jesus would die for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. That includes us. Okay, and, you, and if you, you know, you know that if you've read the Bible, that, you know, there was huge issues between Jews and Gentiles. They had, um, you know, this wall of, Bear, like it says, there was hostility among them, okay? And the, the pious Jew, he, when he would pray in the morning, okay, in his little house, okay, he would pray to God and thank God that, hey, I'm, I'm thankful I'm not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile, okay? Jews were 
grateful, and they did not like Gentiles because they were unclean. They were circumcised, and they were grateful. They were praying God daily, thanking that I'm not a Gentile. Okay, and this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, it was religious, it was sociological, and it was uh, psychological. Obviously, the circumcision was one way that was very clear who was God's people and who was not God's people. One people had peace, one group had, did not have peace, okay? There was food restrictions. When you go through the book of Acts, you see how hard it is for Peter. The first time God calls him to, you know, to reach out to Cornelius. Okay, they couldn't, a Jew couldn't eat with a Gentile. They didn't eat with a Gentile. They were considered unclean. They wouldn't be with them. Okay, and even at the temple, the, there was the temple in Jerusalem was the social, religious, the, you know, establishment, the most important place for the Jews' worship, and the Gentiles couldn't go into the inner courts. They had to stay in the outer courts. And Josephus records that there was a sign in Greek and Latin that if the Gentiles were to walk past that court, there would be punishment by death. Okay, they've done, found descriptions of this. So there was huge hostility between them. And uh, I, don't li- I don't like hostility with people. Uh, you know, I don't consider myself a mean person, but, you know, from time to time you do have it. I know for me, if, if there's tension between me and my wife, I do not like it. I mean, I wanted, I wanted to get on to resolve it, not unresolve it, but to resolve it as quickly as possible. I feel like when there's hostility, for me, maybe you're different, I don't know. But it eats up my soul. It's like I feel like I can't pray, I can't think, I can't smile, I can put on a smile, but inside I'm not happy. And I think we're not created to be in this you know, hostile environment with one another. And I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we have hostility with one another, or with someone at your work or your job? Or, um, and there's so many examples from history that can correlate to the Jew and the Gentile. This hostility, this wall, this barrier, this wall of hostility like Paul talks about here. Obviously, you have the apartheid in South Africa. You have the segregation laws in the United States not that long ago. Uh, you have the caste system in India. And all these things have been abolished, just like the law. Even though they're abolished, it still is taking place. There's still segregation in one way, okay? It could be, you could, maybe it's physically, you just look at the landscape. Maybe it's internal between people. And you're going to ask, ask why, okay, when the law, the law is abolished, why has not things changed? Well, a law doesn't necessarily change your heart. And that's what Paul is saying by here. The law doesn't change the heart, but the spirit does. And I think it's so, so amazing how Paul talks about this in this passage, okay, that we are no longer foreigners, we're no longer strangers. Now the church is the new temple, God's household. Okay, and the church can shine so brightly in our communities. And the purpose that Jesus came, the Paul says here in verse 15, he says, um, by abolishing in his flesh the law, its commandments, and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And that one new man is not, you know... <laughs> Superhero, yeah, but that, that is, that is a, a people, a congregation, God's people. That's, that's the new man, the Jew and the Gentile, and the one man to make peace. Amen. That is awesome. And that's God's purpose, you know, to create that peace, one new man, and to make peace between Jew and Gentile, and to reconcile us to himself through the cross. And the cross puts to death the barrier. The cross puts to death the law. 
and changes the heart from the inside out. And I think, you know, sometimes for me, I think, you know, how can I, when I look at Jesus on the cross, how can I have this, you know, maybe ugly attitude towards this person? When I see how Jesus prayed for people on the cross, that's supposed to be the thing that transforms my heart to not have hostility towards other people. And uh, a lot of people argue that, you know, religion is a source of conflict. And you can go back and forth and argue that. Uh, but when you look at Christianity or the Christian God, there's this Polish poet. His name is Czesław Milos. Like he, know, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he, you know, for those of you into political history, Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. Okay, he did a rebuttal against Karl Marx. And he said that now we're witnessing a transformation, a true opium of the people, is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace in thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. So it's actually the flip side, okay? And there's a Yale scholar said the same thing, Miroslav Wolf, okay? Those that believe in God, those are the people that refrain from retaliating because they entrust themselves like Jesus did to a higher authority, so our belief in God, our relationship with God should be a source of motivation in how we treat one another. Not retaliation, but with love, with respect. Okay, and that's how we're called to be following Jesus, of course. And you know, we can think about Hebrews 12, 3. If you, you know, have this wall of hostility or if there's something going on, maybe it's at your home, in your marriage, at your job, at your school. In Hebrews 12, 3, it says, Consider Jesus in the context of it, refraining from sin which we want to do, who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus. That is daily. We've got to consider Jesus. We've got to look in our Bibles. We've got to fight. We've got to learn. We've got to dig and consider Jesus, how we can imitate Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, Jesus entrusts himself to him who judges justly. And the power to refrain comes from trusting in God that will settle all wrongs. And I think of the second question, right? How can you learn to refrain from retaliating? Now, you can refrain when you trust in Jesus, when you entrust yourself like Jesus did to God. That gives you the power to not retaliate. And Paul goes on to say, you know, consequently in verse 18, how this new church, right, when the Gentiles came in to this new church, obviously it was hardships for the Gentiles when they came into this church, the church is mainly Jewish in the beginning, and here comes these people that they've, you know, learned their whole life. You've got to stay away from. And now they're coming into the church, and Paul's saying that, no, no, you're fellow members. You have the exact same rights, Jews and Gentiles. There's no difference anymore. Okay, the, we're built on the foundation. We have the same foundation, apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. When I look at this congregation, I see this passage. I, I visually see it right here. It's such a diverse room, and I know, just like Paul shared, I mean, this relationship we have in the church are amazing, and people come in and see this. I mean, it is, I have traveled, you know, some places, I have not seen it. It is beautiful, and we're called to be that for people, to what Jesus was for us, to, to preach that to people, the peace. Amen. I want to finish off here with the challenge for all of us in verse Chapter 4, okay, when Paul, in the same, same book, and it reads in verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you 
to live a life worthy of the calling you received, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the union of the Spirit to the bond of peace. Our bond of peace is the Spirit. Super Bowl is coming up. It's not the NFL. It's not what college we went to, the color of our skin. Our bond of peace is the Spirit. And it's amazing that we have that truth together. We can be that for one another, for our families, for our communities, for the Hampton Roads, and for the whole world, and show them that Jesus is indeed the peace man. He has the answer, he's the truth, and he's the hope. Amen.